Section number 10 of Astounding Stories 7, July 1930. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Astounding Stories 7, July 1930, by Various. From an Amber Block, by Tom Curry. In spite of the fact that they had learned so many facts about the murder, they as yet hadn't solved the mystery. Who had murdered Rune and why, and where had his blood gone to? In no other rooms could be found any traces of a struggle. If you won't do anything else, please carry a gun, begged Betty of Marable. I'm going to try to take father home right after lunch if he'll go. He's so stubborn. I can't make him take care. I've got to watch him and stay beside him. Very well, replied Marable. I'll get a revolver. Not think I think it would be of much use. If I did find, he broke off and shrugged his broad shoulders. Leffler came storming into the room. What's this I hear? he cried, approaching Marable. A watchman killed in the night. Carelessness, man, carelessness. The authorities here are absurd. They hold priceless treasures and allow thieves to enter and wreak their will. You, Marable, what's all this mean? Leffler was angry. Marable looked into his red face coolly. We do the best we can, Mr. Leffler, he said. It's unlikely that anyone would wish to steal such a thing as that block of amber. He waved toward the giant mass. Leffler made a gesture of impatience. It cost me many thousands of dollars, he cried. It's time for lunch, Professor, said Betty. Marable bowed to Leffler and left the millionaire sputtering away, inspecting the various specimens he had contributed. The one o'clock gong had struck, and all the workers and investigators were living in paleontological laboratories for a bite to eat. Marable with Betty went out last. Leffler was over in one corner of the room, hidden from their side by a corner of an amber block. They could hear Leffler still uttering complaints about the carelessness of the man in charge of that section of the museum, and Marable smiled at Betty sadly. Poor Rooney, he said. Betty, I feel more or less responsible in a way. No, no, cried the girl. How could you have foreseen such a thing? Marable shook his head. Those eyes, you know, I should have taken precautions, but I had no idea it could burst from its prison so. For the first time Marable had definitely mentioned his idea of what had occurred. The girl had understood it all along from their broken conversation and from the look in the young scientist's eyes. She sighed deeply. You'll get a revolver before you search further, she said. I'm going to. Smythe has one, and I know he'll lend it to me. I will, he promised. You know, Leffler has the same idea we have, I think. That's why he keeps talking about it being our fault. I believe he has seen something, too. His talk about the devil inside the block was half in earnest. I suppose he put it down to imagination, or perhaps he didn't think this fossil to be dangerous. They went out together and walked toward the restaurant they frequented. Her father was there, 
lunching with one of the superintendents of the museum. He smiled and waved Betty. Everyone, of course, was discussing the killing of Rooney. After an hour during which the two young people spoke little, Marable and Betty Young left the restaurant and started back toward the museum. Her father was still at his table. They walked up the driveway entrance, and then Marable uttered an exclamation. Something's wrong, he said. There was a small crowd of people collected on the steps. The outer doors, instead of being open as usual, were closed and guards stood peering out. Marable and Betty were admitted after they had pushed their way to the doors. Museum's closed to the public, sir, replied a guard to Marable's question. Why? asked Marable. Something's happened up in the paleontological laboratories, answered the guard. Don't know just what, but orders come to clear the rooms and not let anybody in but members of the staff, sir. Marable hurried forward. Betty was at his heels. Please get yourself a gun, she said, clutching his arm and holding him back. All right, I'll borrow one from a guard. He returned to the front doors and came back, slipping a large pistol into his side pocket. I want you to wait here, he said. No, I'm going with you. Please, he said. As your superior, I order you to remain downstairs. The girl shrugged. She left him to climb the stairs to the first floor, and then she hurried back in search of Smythe. Smythe obtained a gun for her, and as she didn't wish to wait for the slow elevator, she ran up the steps. Smythe couldn't tell her definitely what had occurred in the upper laboratory that had caused the museum to be closed for the day. Her heart beating swiftly, Betty Young hurried up the second flight of stairs to the third floor. A workman whom the girl recognized as a manual laborer in the paleontological rooms came running down, passing her in full flight, a look of abject terror on his face. What is it? she cried. He was so frightened he couldn't talk logically. There was a black fog. I saw a red snake with legs. She waited for no more. A pang of fear for the safety of Marable shot through her heart, and she forced herself onto the top floor. Up there was a haze, faintly black, which filled the corridors. As Betty Young drew closer to the door of the paleontological laboratories, the mist grew more opaque. It was as though a sooty fog permeated the air, and the girl could see it was pouring from the door of the laboratory in heavy coils and her nostrils caught the strange odor of faded musk. She was greatly frightened, but she gripped the gun and pushed on. Then to her ears came the sound of a scream, the terrible scream of a mortally wounded man. Instinctively she knew it wasn't Marable, but she feared for the young professor, and with an answering cry she rushed into the smoky atmosphere of the outer laboratories. Water! she called but evidently he didn't hear her, for no reply came. Or was it that something had happened to him? She paused on the threshold of the big room where were the amber blocks. Above the vast floor space stood the numerous masses of stone and amber, 
some covered with immense canvas shrouds which make them look like ghost hillocks in the dimness. Betty Young stood, gasping in fright, clutching the pistol in her hand, trying to catch the sound of men in the chamber of horror. She heard then a faint whimpering, and the noises which she identified in her mind as something being dragged along the marble flooring. A muffled scream, weak, reached her ears, and as she took a step forward, silence came. She listened longer, but now the sunlight coming through the window to make murky patches in the vague black fog was her chief sensation. Water, she called. Go back, Betty, go back. The mist seemed to muffle voices as well as obscure the vision. She advanced farther into the laboratory, trying to locate Marable. Bravely, the girl pushed toward the biggest amber block. It was here that she felt instinctively that she would find the source of danger. Leffler, she heard Marable say almost at her elbow, at the young man groan. The girl came upon him, bending over something on the floor. She knelt beside him, gripping his arm. Now she could see the outline of Leffler's body at her feet. The wealthy collector was doubled up on the ground, shriveled as had been Rooney, his feet moving as though by reflex action, patted the floor from time to time, making a curious clicking sound as the buttons of his gray spats struck the marble. But it was obvious, even in the murky light, that Leffler was dead, that he had been sucked dry of blood. Betty Young screamed. She couldn't help it. The black fog choked her and she gasped for breath. Leaving Marable, she ran toward the windows to throw them open. The first one she tried was heavy, and she smashed the glass with the butt of the gun. She broke several panes in two of the windows, and the mist rolled out from the laboratory. She started to return to the side of Marable. He uttered a sudden shout and she hurried back to where she had left him, stumbling over the leper's body, recalling at this touch of death. Marable wasn't there, but she could hear him nearby. Cool air was rushing in from the windows, and gradually the fog was disappearing. Betty Young saw Marable now, standing nearby, staring at the bulk of an amber block which was still covered by its canvas shroud. Though not as large as the price exhibit, this block of amber was large and filled many yards of space. Betty, please go outside and call some of the men, begged Marable. But he didn't look at her, and she caught his fascinated stare. Following the direction of his gaze, the girl saw that a wisp of smoky mist was curling up from under the edge of the canvas cover. It's there, whispered Betty. Marable had a knife which he had picked up from a bench, and with this he began quietly to cut the canvas case of the block, keeping several feet to each side of the spot where the fog showed from beneath the shroud. Marable cut swiftly and efficiently. Though the cloth was heavy and he was forced to climb up several feet on the block to make his work effective, the girl watched, fascinated with horror and curiosity. To their ears came a curious sucking sound, and once a vague tentacle form showed from the bottom of the canvas. 
At last Marable seized the edge of the cut he had made, and with a violent heave sent the canvas flap flying over the big block. Betty Young screamed. At last she had a sight of the terrible creature which her imagination had painted in loathing and horror, a flash of brilliant scarlet, dabbed with black patches, was her impression of the beast. A head flat and reptilian, long tubular, with movable nostrils and antennae at the end, framed to eyes which were familiar enough to her, for they were the orbs which had stared from the inside of the amber block. She had dreamed of those eyes. But the reptile moved like a flash of red light, though she knew its bulk was great, it spread forth black mist from the appendages at the end of its nose, and the crumpling of canvas reached her ears as the beast endeavored to conceal itself on the opposite side of the block. Marable had run to the other side of the mass. The air rushing from the windows had cleared the mist in spite of the new cloud the creature had emitted, and Betty could see for some feet in either direction now. She walked with stiff, frozen muscles round to join Marable. As she came near to him, she saw him jerking all the entire canvas cover of the block to expose the horrible reptile to the light of day. And now the two stood staring at the awful sight. The creature had flattened itself into the crevices and irregular surfaces of the block, but it was too large to hide in anything but a huge space. They saw before them its great bulk bright red skin blotched with black, which rose and fell with the breathing of the reptile, its long powerful tail tapering off from the fat, loathsome body, was curled around the bottom of the block. That's where it's been hidden, under the shroud. We have been within a few feet of it every moment we have been at work, said Marble, his voice dry. There were many hiding places for it, but it chose the best. It came out only when there was comparative quiet to get its food. We... we must kill it, stammered the girl. But she couldn't move. She was looking at the immense, cruel, eyeless eyes, which balefully held her as a serpent paralyzes a bird. The tubular nostrils and antennae seemed to be sniffing at them waving to and fro. See the white expanse of cornea, how large it is, whispered Marble. The pupils are nothing but black slits now. The interest excited by this living fossil was almost enough to stifle the dread of the creature in the man. But the girl saw the huge flat head and the crinkled tissue of the frilled mouth with its sucker discs. Suddenly, from the central portion of the sarcocarp mouth, issued a long, straight red fang. The two drew back as the living fossil raised a short, clawed leg. It has the thick body of an immense python and the clawed legs of a dinosaur, said Marable, speaking as though he were delivering a lecture. The sight without doubt fascinated him as a scientist. He almost forgot the danger. Oh, it's horrible, whispered the girl. She clung to his arm. He went on talking. It's some sort of a terrestrial octopus. To the girl it seemed that the living fossil was endless in length, 
Coil after coil showed as the ripples passed along its body and the straight fang threatened them with destruction. See, it's armored, said Marable. Betty, no one has ever had such an experience as this, seen such a sight and lived to tell of it. It must be ravenous with hunger. Shut up in its amber cell inside the black fluid, I... A sharp whistling hiss interrupted his speech. The reptile was puffing and swelling, and as it grew in bulk with the intake of the air, its enamel-like scales stood out like bosses of the great body. It spat forth a cloud of black, oily mist, and Marble came to himself at last. He raised his revolver and fired at the creature, sending shot after shot from the heavy revolver into the head. Betty Young screamed as the reptile reared up and made a movement toward them. Marable and the girl retreated swiftly, as the beast thumped to the floor with a thud and started at them, advancing with a queer, crawling movement. It was between them and the door. Betty thrust her gun into Marable's hands, for his own was empty and he had hurled it at the monster. Hurry! Run for your life, ordered Marable, placing himself between Betty and the reptile. She wouldn't leave him till he swerved to one side, going dangerously close to the beast and firing into its head. The rush of the flowing body stopped. It turned and pursued him, leaving the girl safe for the moment but separated from Marable. Luckily, on the smooth Marable, it couldn't get an efficient grip with its claw-like arms. It was clumsy in its gait, and for a time the man eluded it. Betty Young, looking about for a weapon, calling for help at the top of her lungs, caught sight of a fireman's axe and a glass case on the wall. She ran over, smashed the glass with the small hammer, and took out the heavy axe. Shirt after shirt reverberated through the big laboratory as Marable tried to stop the monster. Betty, bravely closing in from the rear, saw Marable leaping from side to side as the brute struck viciously at him time and again. The creature had been emitting cloud after cloud of black fog, and the atmosphere, in spite of the open windows, was dim in its vicinity. Vaguely, Betty heard shouts from the far hall, but all she could do was to call out and return and run toward the horror. Marable, out of breath, had climbed to the top of an amber block. Betty, close by, saw the reptile rear its bulk into the air, until it was high enough to strike the man. Before it could send forth its death-dealing fanged pin Marable to the block, however, Betty Young brought the axe down on its back with all her strength. There was a sickening thud as the sharp weapon sank deep into the fleshy back. She struck again, and the creature fell in folds, like a collapsing spring. It lashed back at her, but she leaped clear as it slashed in agony, thrashing about so that the whole room seemed to rock. Marable came scrambling down the side of the block to help her. He was breathing hard and she turned toward him as Betty looked away. A portion of the scarlet tail hit her in the body, and she fell, striking her head on the floor. 
Marable reached down, seized the axe, and in desperate frenzy hacked at that reptile's awful head. He leaped in and out like a terrier, sinking the axe deep into the neck and head of the beast. He gave the impression of slashing at heavy rubber, and Betty Young, trying to drag herself away from that dangerous body, heard his whistling breath. They were almost hidden from one another now, in the mist which came from the thing's nostrils. Help! Help! screamed the girl, mustering her last strength in the despairing cry. She saw Marable go down then, as the reptile hit him a glancing blow with its body. When the powerful young fellow didn't rise, the girl thought it was all over. The air really became black to her. She fainted and lay still. When Betty Young opened her eyes, the air had cleared greatly, and she could see the familiar outlines of the paleontological laboratory and the bulks of the amber blocks. Her father was holding her head in his lap and was bathing her temples with water. Darling, he said, are you badly hurt? No, she murmured faintly. I'm, I'm all right, but, but Walter did it. He's all right, said her father. The reptile was dying, and it could do him no damage. He finished it off. Then Marable, covered with blood, which he was trying to wipe from his hands and clothes, came and smiled down at her. Well, said Professor Young, you two have mutilated a marvelous and unique specimen between you. There were several men examining something nearby. Turning her eyes in their direction, Betty saw they were viewing the remains of the reptile. Marable helped her to her feet and stood with one arm about her. Professor Orling, the famous specialist on fossil reptiles, was speaking now, and the others listened. I think we will find it to be some sort of missing link between the dinosaurs and mosasaurs. It's surely unbelievable that such a creature should be found alive, but perhaps it can be explained. It's related to the amphibians and was able to live in or out of the water. Now we have many instances of reptiles such as lizards and toads penned up in solid rock but surviving for hundreds of years. Evidently, this great reptile went through the same sort of experience. I would say that there has been some great upheaval of nature, that the reptile was caught in its prison of amber thousands and thousands of years ago, through hibernation and perhaps a preservative drug it emitted in the black fluid. This creature has been able to survive its long imprisonment. Naturally, when it was released by the cutting away of part of the amber which penned it in, it burst its cell, ravenous with hunger. The fang-like tooth we see was its main weapon of attack, and it sat upon the unfortunate watchman. After knocking him unconscious, its sucker-like fringe glued the mouth near the heart while a fang shot into the arteries and drew forth the body fluids. There is a great deal to be done with this valuable find, gentlemen. I would suggest that... Marable grunted. Oh, hell, he murmured in Betty Young's ear. To the devil with paleontology, Betty, you saved my life. Come out and let's get married. I love you. The girl smiled up into his eyes. 
The scientists, close by, were listening fascinatedly to Erling's words, and had no time to watch the two young people, for they stared at the reptile's body, as the great man went from section to section lecturing upon one point after another. You have forgotten paleontology for a moment, thank goodness, said Betty. I am glad. Yes, Betty, dear, this terrible experience has shaken me, and I realized how much I love you when I saw you in danger. What an awful few minutes! If I had to live them over again, I don't think I could face them. Never mind, she murmured. We are safe, Walter. After all, it's not every woman who is helped by a living fossil to make the man she loves realize he loves her. End of section 10